0: was movement at the station, for the word had got around that the colt from old regret had got away and had joined the wild bush horses. He was worth a thousand pound. So all the cracks had gathered to the fray. All the tried and noted riders from the stations near and far had mustered at the homestead overnight, for the bushmen love hard riding where the wild bush horses are, and the stock horse snuffs the battle with delight. This is the opening stanza of Banjo Patterson's famous poem, The Man from Snowy River. It was first published in 1890 in The Bulletin, which was a Sydney-based newspaper. But unlike most bush poets of his era, Banjo, whose real name was Andrew Patterson, was no rough and tumble bushman. He grew up on profitable farms. He was part of a very comfortable middle-class family And the inspiration for his writing came from watching the Drovers and Horsemen, who were a regular sight on his farm or on other farms nearby, and of seeing the Bullock Drays and the Cobb & Co coaches go by. He also enjoyed watching polo. He liked the rough and ready nature of the men who participated. At this time in rural Australia, polo was very popular, but it was certainly not a sport for the faint-hearted and was far removed from the sport of kings that it would become. Patterson's constant exposure to horses grew into a fondness, and much of his poetry and writing features daring horsemen and drovers. The Man from Snowy River, of course, a very famous example of this. Um, Another work that's well known that has these themes as well is Clancy of the Overflow. And Clancy actually features in The Man from Snowy River. He comes down to help catch the escaped horse. The Man from Snowy River, for those who might not be familiar with the poem, tells the story of a valuable young horse who has escaped from a farm and joined a herd of wild horses known as Brumbies in Australia who are living in the shadow of monstrous hills. A group of the best riders come to try and catch the horse, but are warned that if the herd reaches the shelter of the mountains, the drovers will never have a chance to catch the missing colt. Regardless, they're all keen to go and ride with the Brumbies and press on, including the unnamed man from Snowy River, who is mounted on a stocky little mountain pony, that some of the drovers are sure will fail to catch the fast-running colt. But... As the horses rush for the shelter of the hills and the drovers are forced to abandon their pursuit, the man from Snowy River and his mountain pony continue the chase. He successfully drives the Brumbies and the colt back to the farm. I guess because why catch one horse when you can take the whole herd? And in the final stanza, the reader learns that the people still talk about the incredible feat by the man from Snowy River all that time ago. As a poem, there's nothing wrong with it, and it's a well-known and well-loved set of verses. This was the work that catapulted Banjo-Patterson from obscure bush poet and moderately successful journalist to a household name throughout Australia. Along with Australia's unofficial national anthem, Waltzing Matilda, The Man from Snowy River is one of his best-known works, and it's still read and shared very often. If you live in Australia, even if you haven't read or heard the poem yourself, you'll have heard the phrase, the man from Snowy River, at least once. But the romance of the wild bush horses, as Banjo Patterson calls them, hides a very dark underbelly. As beautiful and majestic as they are, the Brumbies are not supposed to be here. They're an invasive species, descended from horses who escaped or were set loose following the European invasion of Australia in 1788. Australia usually has a pretty good track record when it comes to removing invasive pests and protecting our native flora and fauna, much of it, of course, being completely unique to this country. But nothing excites passions more than the Brumbies. But why? What makes the feral horses of Australia so special? And is this devotion based on fact or myth? I'm Juliana, and you're listening to The Skeptical Historian. Hello fellow sceptics, thank you so very much for joining me once again. As always, I would like to begin by acknowledging the Wurundjeri, Woiwurrung, and Boon Wurundjeri people on whose lands I am podcasting today and pay my respect to the elders past, present and emerging. Shout out also to Studio 4 at the State Library of Victoria where this episode is being recorded. For more information or to book the studio yourself please head to www.slv.vic.gov.au. As mentioned in the intro, a Brumby is a wild horse, a feral horse specifically, living in Australia, the equivalent of a Mustang for my North American listeners. The origins of the word are unclear, and there are a number of different theories, from it being the name of a soldier who had to abandon his horses when he left Sydney in 1804, Sergeant James Brumby, to a bastardisation of an indigenous word meaning wild or derived from the name of a station that was abandoned which led to the horses breaking out and turning feral. It first appeared in print in 1871 in New South Wales where the term was used ambiguously to refer to an unidentified animal that could live off poor scrub. The next time it appeared in print was in Queensland in 1874 where it was definitively used to describe a horse, specifically a racehorse, that was dismissed as being an ill-bred fellow and only a Brumby, but who nevertheless went on to win the St George's annual races, beating out the thoroughbred favourite. We know that words generally appear in print after they have already entered the spoken language, so it's reasonable for us to assume that the term Brumby was already in use in the vernacular when it first appeared in the paper. The Maitland Mercury and Hunter River General Advertiser, which is where the word first appeared, doesn't define it in that initial article, which would suggest that they were aware that their readership already knew what the word meant. Regardless of its origins, by 1900 it was known right across Australia to mean a feral horse, although the ideas around these horses had changed in the 30 years or so since the word was first published. Early articles that use the word Brumby, including the two we have mentioned, use it as a bit of a derogatory term, the same way that we might describe a dog as a mutt. It's also clear from the newspapers over the following years, especially in the 1870s in Queensland, that the brumbies were a huge problem. Most of the articles from this period talk about Brumby shooting and how large the wild horse population has become. Squatters who had previously refused to sell the feral horses on their properties, despite being offered astronomical sums of money in the 1850s and 60s, when horses were rare and in high demand, because no doubt they were hoping demand and prices would increase, were now complaining to the papers about having to pay shooters to kill the horses because they were competing with the livestock for grazing land. For the record, I don't have much sympathy for squatters in any corner of Australian history, although I find it stupidly ironic that they were killing one invasive species to make way for another. Although the squatters, of course, didn't see it like this. For them, it was a business decision. If the sheep and cattle that made the squatter his money couldn't graze because the Brumbies were eating everything inside, then his livestock would die, he wouldn't make money, and he'd have to sell his property. That would then be the end of his life as a pseudo-aristocrat. And that lifestyle was very important to a lot of these men. The early squatters had generally been quite poor, usually rural Irish and Scottish, who had come to Australia as some of the earliest freemen, that is, not as convicts, when the tickets were cheap because no one wanted to immigrate to what was essentially a giant open-air prison at that point. These men had become very wealthy after they'd taken up huge tracts of land, and they weren't about to give up that newfound wealth without a fight, especially not to herds of feral horses. But by 1900, the term Brumby had lost most of its derogatory meaning, and had instead become quite an ordinary noun. Patterson's poems helped with this, giving the Brumby a bit of a romantic edge, Although at the beginning of the 20th century, the horses were much better loved in poetry than they were in real life. Now, this feels like a good time to take a break. So sit tight, put your stock whips away, and I'll see you in a moment. Hey, listeners, it's Juliana from The Skeptical Historian here. If you're enjoying your fortnightly dose of Skeptical History... Please don't forget to rate and leave a review of my podcast on your favourite podcasting app and then tell your friends and loved ones all about it. Personal recommendations are the best kind. Now, let's get back to the show. And welcome back one and all. Now, learning where the word Brumby comes from is all well and good, but where did the brumbies themselves come from? Horses aren't native to Australia and never in the history of this continent have we had any species of horse. Horses actually evolved in North America around 45 million years ago, although we wouldn't actually recognise one of these particular horses as a horse today, and they were only about the size of a fox. Over time, as they spread out across the plains, they grew bigger, and they evolved into two distinct subspecies, and they adapted to live in these places that had quite sparse vegetation. Eventually, they spread out into Europe and Asia, Although they became extinct in North America around 10,000 BCE during the mass extinction event that killed off most of the Ice Age megafauna, including the woolly mammoth and the saber-toothed cat. The horse returned to North America with the Spanish conquistadors in the 1400s, but they wouldn't make their way to Australia until the first fleet landed on the 26th of January 1788. In the 1780s, the journey from Australia to Britain took around seven months by sailing ship and that was if you were lucky and on a fast ship. It could take a year or more if you hit bad weather. Now, that's hard enough for a person and even worse for a horse. So only the strongest, whether you were a horse or a person, could get to Australia alive. Now, this meant that the horses who first landed on this continent were already the strongest and healthiest of those who had been brought over. Any weaker animals were killed in the crossing. Now, initially, this probably would have been seen as a blessing by the soldiers and political administrators who were running the penal colony. After all, while convicts could and did pull plows and do other types of heavy farm work, it was much more efficient to have a horse do it. In 1800, just 12 years after the First Fleet landed... There were still only a couple of hundred horses in Australia and all of them would have been work animals. This changed in the 1810s as horse racing became popular and thoroughbreds began to be shipped from Britain. And by 1820, there were as many as three and a half thousand horses, some imported and some born in the colony. And by 1850, shortly before the discoveries of gold in Victoria and New South Wales, when Europeans had spread out from the original settlements in New South Wales and Tasmania, then called Van Diemen's Land, and were well established in what would become the colonies of Victoria, South Australia and Queensland, there were 160,000 horses on this continent, both feral and domestic and almost all had been born in the colonies. So just let that sink in for a minute. We started in 1800 with 200 imported horses in Australia. By 1850, so within 50 years, there were 160,000. And these are the ancestors of our modern day Brumbies. While some horses went feral after escaping from poorly fenced farmland, where fences were used at all, It is believed that most horses went feral after pastoralists, unable to maintain their land, abandoned their runs and stations and their livestock too. Up in the Northern Territory, where Brumbies are not as common as they are in Queensland, New South Wales and Victoria, they have similar problems with feral cattle who were abandoned by the pastoralists when they could no longer maintain their cattle runs. Because every horse that came to Australia was relatively healthy, and because horses have evolved to survive on plains with sparse vegetation, the abandoned horses thrived here and their numbers continued to expand, although they certainly weren't well loved. Up until the middle of the 20th century, a lot of places that are now national parks were sheep and cattle farms. In many places, these properties had been in people's families for generations and would, they believed, be in their families for generations more. That all changed in the 1930s when the governments of Victoria and especially New South Wales began conducting studies into the delicate environments and ecosystems of the high country, especially the impact that grazing sheep and cattle was having on these unique and irreplaceable areas. By the 1940s, it was becoming very clear that if the sheep and cattle were allowed to remain, there would be no highlands left in either state. The livestock caused erosion and polluted waterways. They were trampling delicate vegetation and spreading weeds across the highlands, which were choking out native species. And the graziers themselves regularly took to burning the undergrowth to encourage new grass shoots, which their animals preferred, And this was taking a huge toll on the ecosystem. But for the owners of the sheep and cattle runs, these were not concerns at all. Environmentalism was still a relatively new thing in the mid-20th century. And it didn't sit well with people like the graziers who had made their money and their living off exploiting the aforementioned environment. Much like the squatters of old, their decisions were based on their business. They maintained that their regular burning prevented bushfires and that the erosion was not caused by livestock, but instead was a natural process. The issue they wanted the government to focus on was the horses, who competed with their livestock for food and frequently damaged their fences. Horses are very powerful animals and they have evolved to run. If they are moving at speed, they won't always see a fence, especially a fence that's been designed for sheep or cattle, and they can go right through it. And this can result in catastrophic injury to the horse and expensive damage to the fence. Now, before anyone points out that horses can jump, I do, of course, know that horses can jump. From the research I was able to do on this issue, it seems that most of the damage that the graziers were complaining about came from horses going through their fences. Now, fencing was actually comparatively recent in the Highlands while the graziers and Brumbies were sharing the area. As it wasn't until 1917 that the laws governing grazing leases in the area created incentives to erect fences in the first place. The Brumbies had been in the Highlands since the early 1800s, so they weren't used to the fences and they didn't care for the boundaries of the graziers' leases either. If they wanted something, a fence wasn't going to stop them. And in 1940, the graziers approached the government and asked for machine guns to help exterminate the feral horses. So... What changed? How did we go from requests to indiscriminately machine gun the Brumbies to the New South Wales State Parliament passing a bill to protect these same animals on heritage grounds in 2018? I'm going to take another break to give you a moment to wrap your heads around a state government passing legislation to protect a feral animal and I'll be back shortly. Fellow sceptics, I hope you are firmly in your saddles right now because it's about to get crazy in here the brumby bill officially known as the Kosciuszko wild horse heritage act 2018 was passed with the object of recognizing the heritage value of sustainable wild horse populations within parts of the Kosciuszko national park and to protect that heritage the only thing i have to say to that is what heritage value The Brumbies are no more part of our heritage than rabbits, foxes, cattle, goats, deer, carp or rats are. They are not a long-lost throwback to the days of settler colonialism. They're descendants of horses abandoned by the settler colonialists. Less than a hundred years ago, we wanted to machine gun them. And while feral animals need to be effectively managed and removed from ecosystems before they destroy them, I absolutely draw the line at allowing civilians to wield machine guns indiscriminately. Fortunately, the government of the 1940s did too, and refused this request. But the change in the view of the Brumbies seems to tie in with another event that happened around the same time. Following the studies conducted in the 1930s and 40s about the impact of livestock on the fragile highlands ecosystem, the government of New South Wales made a decision. They would not renew the leases of the graziers who would turn their flocks out to pasture there and this area would become a designated national park. As you can imagine, this did not go down well with the graziers and their families who felt they had a traditional right to graze the land and that any land not being used for pasture was wasted land. These views might be difficult to understand today, but Australia has always had a very strong agricultural industry and lots of people in the early days of settlement and well into the 20th century made a lot of money off cattle and particularly sheep. Those who were not wealthy felt themselves to be the original Aussie battlers who fought to tame the land and bend it to their will. This idea of the rugged mountain man with his few sheep scratching out a living for his family through sheer grit and determination was a popular one in Australia, especially as we moved into the more conservative post-World War II era. The cheeky, authority-snubbing larrikin was no longer the go-to true blue Aussie And instead, the battler and his family, hard-working but uncomplaining, became the preferred mythological figures. They too snubbed authority, just in a different way, and didn't need the bloody government coming in and telling them what was what. They were good, strong, God-fearing people, thank you very much. And you city dwellers with your fancy cars and white picket fences better stay the heck out of it. I'm probably coming across as a little unsympathetic here. While I don't have much patience for the myth of the Aussie battler, who has about as much substance as the Aussie larrikin, I do honestly feel for the highland farmers of the 30s, 40s and 50s. Many of them had been grazing their sheep in these pastures for generations and had formed a tight-knit community. To be forced off land they felt was rightfully theirs, it had always been leased, but the renewal had been a formality rather than anything else, would have been horrible. Horrible. They would have had strong sentimental connections to the area as well as money tied up in how they managed their runs and leases and to lose all that would have been utterly devastating. In New South Wales, it actually became known as the Range Wars. Throughout the 40s and 50s, the graziers fought the government every step of the way to retain the right to graze their flocks in the highlands. Violence was not uncommon and there was no middle ground but eventually the government won the day as governments usually do. The leases were not renewed and the sheep and cattle were forced off. The graziers had to move on and the Kosciuszko Highlands region became part of a national park. I want to stress again that I cannot even begin to imagine the pain and devastation this must have caused some families, but that doesn't mean it was the wrong decision. The highland environments are incredibly unique and very, very fragile. The frequent burning for green shoots was causing creeks and bogs to dry up, and killing rare types of moss. The cattle and sheep were not only causing massive erosion and damaging waterways for other animals, but were compacting the soil as well. When it rains, water can usually flow through the soil. But compacted soil doesn't allow water through, and this causes it to pool on the surface. It results in stagnant pools that become breeding grounds for disease-carrying mosquitoes and poisonous algae, while preventing water from flowing into the creeks and rivers, or into the soil itself to nourish the rich and diverse plant life of the highland region. But there is another animal causing all the same problems, and this one is proving much harder to move on than the graziest sheep and cattle. And that animal, of course, is the Brumby. Other feral animals in the Highlands, especially pigs, deer and goats, are subjected to effective controls which ensure they don't cause damage to our precious environment. Professional sharpshooters kill them quickly and cleanly, causing minimal distress to the animal and the same control measures should apply to the Brumbies too. Even the RSPCA, the Royal Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals, which is the premier body for animal welfare in Australia, says this would be both the most effective and the most humane method for dealing with the feral horses. Instead, because of the Brumby Bill, these shooters must move through the parks, studiously avoiding the very animals which are causing the most damage. And the loudest voices demanding they be left alone are from the same group of people whose cattle and sheep were forced out of the highlands decades ago. Coincidence? Those on the front line trying to save the national parks from the Brumbies don't think so. Richard Swain uh, were a jury man who spent most of his life in the high country. His father was actually one of the scientists sent in to help repair the park after the graziers were finally moved on. And Professor Don Driscoll, an ecologist, believe that these people are not actually interested in saving the Brumbies at all. Rather... They hope that if the horses cause enough irreversible damage to the landscape, they might be allowed to return with their sheep and cattle and the Brumbies are just a good smokescreen. I don't know if this is true or not, but it does strike me as suspicious that the Highland Graziers went from wanting to blow the horses into oblivion to becoming some of their biggest supporters. Also, the behaviour of these Brumby supporters is shocking. Threats, physical attacks, online lynch mobs, and even a threat, thankfully not carried out, to firebomb the offices of the New South Wales National Parks and Wildlife Service. All to protect thousands of feral animals that have no cultural value, no heritage significance, and are literally trampling the national parks to death. I'm going to take another pause here. And then I'll be back to take a closer look at the arguments for the Brumbies and whether their supporters may have a point or two hidden amongst their violent rhetoric. Hey there, fellow sceptics. It's Juliana here. I'm on a mission to make sure the sceptical historian is accessible to everyone, regardless of how you experience the show. If you would like a transcript of this or any other episode, you can find one by going to my website, www.skepticalhistory.com. That's Skeptical with a K and clicking on Podcast. And if you experience any accessibility issues, please reach out to me so I can rectify this. Now, let's get back to the show. And I am back, my friends. What I'm going to do now is have a look at some of the reasons given by Brumby proponents about why they should be treated differently to other feral animals. I'm not going to pretend that I'm objective here. I come down firmly on the side of getting the brumbies out of our national parks but I do think it's worth examining some of these arguments and considering any merits they may have. Let's start with this one that the Brumbies are wild horses. This comes from a misunderstanding of what the terms wild and feral mean when discussing animals. A wild animal is one that roams freely and is a native species. An example in Australia would be wild kangaroos. While we do farm kangaroos in many places for their meat and pelts, they have not been domesticated in the same way as sheep and cattle and there are plenty of wild populations across Australia. They don't cause damage to the natural environment because they've perfectly adapted to live here and fill an ecological niche. A feral animal, on the other hand, is one that has been introduced to the country, such as the horse in Australia, and takes to the wild after being released or abandoned there they invade ecological niches filled by native species, driving them out and pushing unique flora and fauna into extinction. They also cause huge amounts of damage to the environment, which is not adapted to their ways of living and moving. The other difference between wild and feral animals is predation. Most wild animals, unless they are naturally at the top of the food chain, will have predators within their own environment while feral animals often lack natural predators, allowing them to spread and reproduce without the controls they would experience in their natural environment. Horses are large, strong animals, and the largest Australian-based predator, the dingo, may occasionally take foals, but is not strong enough to bring down a fully grown horse, even when they work in packs. In far north Queensland, crocodiles occasionally prey on brumbies, but horses don't generally share the same environments as crocodiles. And given these animals are opportunistic predators rather than specialized hunters, they will just as readily eat a buffalo, a kangaroo, or even another crocodile as they will a Brumby. Without natural predators to keep their numbers down, the herds just keep getting bigger. This is not a feature of wild animal populations, which are controlled both by native predators and the environment they exist in. In summary... Brumbies are feral animals, not wild animals, and the only way to control a feral animal population is with human intervention. The next argument I want to look at comes from those who claim that the Brumbies in Australia are no different to the Mustangs in North America. They claim that the governments of the United States and Canada, now feral horses aren't called Mustangs in Canada, but I'm going to use this word in general to avoid confusion, have successfully managed their herds without needing to cull the horses and have been able to reduce their impact on the environment. Australia, they argue, should learn from these management techniques. There are a few flaws in this argument. First of all, the governments of the USA and Canada have at numerous times culled their feral horse populations. So we can shelve that part of the argument immediately. The other part of the argument that in North America horses are not impacting the environment is complicated. As I mentioned earlier the horse did evolve in North America although it went extinct there around 10,000 BCE and the mustangs of today are actually descended from the horses brought over by the Spanish and the British and the French from the 1400s onwards. However it is true that the horses cause slightly less damage to parts of the North American landscape. But this is because that landscape evolved to support hoofed animals. In Australia, where hoofed animals are not and have never been part of our native fauna, the ground is much softer and the hooves of the Brumbies cause catastrophic damage over time. There is also controversy in North America over whether mustangs are feral at all. They inhabit roughly the same ecological niche that the North American horse did prior to its extinction, although climate change, both natural and human, has significantly altered the landscape since then, and other animals that survived the extinction of 10,000 BCE moved in to fill this gap when the North American horse disappeared. The Wildlife Society, an international group, views the Mustang as an introduced species, given they are not truly wild horses, but descended from domestic animals brought to North America by Europeans. The US National Academies of Science, Engineering and Medicine, and don't let the name fool you, this is the premier scientific research centre in the United States for all kinds of scientific work, also agrees with the Wildlife Society's definition. Some academics dispute this, arguing that the modern horse is a close relative and descendant of the North American horse, so the Mustang should be considered wild, not feral, although the official line from the Bureau of Land Management, which manages the Mustang populations in the United States, is that they are an introduced species. The other thing that North America has that Australia lacks when it comes to the management of feral horses is large predators that are capable of preying on them. As I mentioned above, once a brumby reaches adulthood in Australia, it has absolutely zero predators, unless it happens to live in far north Queensland and stumbles upon a crocodile. In North America, on the other hand, There are at least two large predators that can and do prey on the horses, and those are wolves and mountain lions. Bears do occasionally, but bears and horses don't generally share the same environments. Wolves are larger than dingoes, and a pack is quite capable of taking down an adult mustang. While even a pack of dingoes would struggle to take down a Brumby, and it's also worth noting that dingoes actually don't regularly hunt in packs. The North American mountain lion, which is an expert ambush predator, is another one that is more than capable of dispatching even the healthiest adult horse. But having said that, while both wolves and mountain lions do prey on the horses in North America, they're not populous enough themselves to naturally maintain herd numbers. And in some cases, they don't even share the same territory as the horses the Bureau of Land Management still has to keep the Mustangs contained and engages in culls where necessary to manage the herds. There are also many privately run sanctuaries in the United States where the horses can be cared for without public expense, although in some states the American taxpayer does foot the bill for the long-term care of captured Mustangs. While I'm quite sure that some Brumby advocates in Australia would like taxpayer-funded care for the brumbies. I personally would be spitting nails if I found out that my tax dollars were being used to preserve feral animals who are destroying the native environment in a climate crisis. No. In the United States specifically, the horses also don't live in protected national parks, but have been mostly confined to small areas in a few states. While they are still free roaming, for the most part, they're not destroying protected wilderness and they don't tend to compete with native wildlife for the same food. Farmers and ranchers don't like them for the same reason the graziers pre-1940 hated the Brumbies, but it's outside the scope of this episode to talk about that. All in all, there are too many differences between the Mustangs of North America and the Brumbies of Australia and the environments in which they live to make viable comparisons between the management programs in the United States and Canada and those being pursued in Australia. It's a false equivalency that doesn't have any relevance to the current problem. I'm going to take another break here, and when I get back, I have three more arguments for you. Hey, Skeptics, and I am back again. Of course, you knew I was coming back, but why not make it official? The last three arguments in favour of the Brumbies are more emotional than the first two, But just because an argument is emotional doesn't mean it doesn't have merit, although that remains to be seen with these ideas. Some pro-Brumby advocates argue that the horses deserve more respect than other feral animals because they are the descendants of the animals who built Australia. While it is true that horses were essential in shaping Australia after the European invasion, and there are plenty of famous horses in our history – Uh, Billy the Horse, Sandy the Anzac, Farlap and Nobby to name a few, the ancestors of the Brumbies were not the working animals who built Australia. Their ancestors were the horses turned loose by squatters and pastoralists who could no longer maintain their large runs, or who escaped from poorly fenced properties. They didn't build Australia. They built private wealth for a select few individuals who then spent much of their money desperately trying to control the colonies and established themselves as a bunyip aristocracy. They have no connection to public works, and their ancestors were all privately owned. The next claim that deserves some attention is the claim that the Brumbies are descendants from the horses who went to war with the Anzacs, and nothing gets Australians into a patriotic fervour like the mention of the Anzacs. The problem with this claim is that it too does not stack up to history. Prior to the horrible realities of trench warfare setting in during the First World War, it was believed that cavalry charges would be a feature. So many horses, including some Brumbies, were shipped overseas in the First World War. Only one of these horses ever came home. Australian horses joined our troops in Europe, North Africa and the Middle East. And the charge of the Australian light horse at Beersheba during the Third Battle of Gaza in 1917 is remembered as the last great cavalry charge. Were there Brumbies involved in this charge? Almost certainly. The big question here is, did any of them make it back to Australia? The answer is a definitive no. As I mentioned earlier, only one horse from the First World War ever made it back to Australia. And he was neither a Brumbie nor part of the charge at Bishiba. He was Sandy the Anzac, who I mentioned briefly above. And he was brought back to Australia after service in Gallipoli and France. Due to very strict quarantine laws in Australia at the time, and much to the distress of many Australians who had grown close to their horses during the war, they were not allowed to bring their animals back. Those horses that survived the conflicts were usually sold to the Indian army, given away to locals in the various places the Australians were, or in many cases... Sadly, they had to be shot by the soldiers who loved them because there was no one to buy them and nowhere else for them to go. There is nothing more heart-wrenching to read in a war diary than the grief of a man who has been to hell and back who was forced to shoot his most loyal companion at the end of his service. The reason Sandy came back was because he had been the favourite mount of General Bridges, who was the founder of the Royal Military College at Duntroon, which is now an officer's training college. Bridges had been killed at Gallipoli, but the Australian War Minister at the time decided to bring Sandy home. However, for those hoping that Sandy might have sired the Brumbies wreaking havoc in the national parks, I'm afraid I'm going to have to disappoint you on two fronts. After returning to Australia in 1919, Sandy traumatised and slowly going blind, spent the rest of his days being cared for in a paddock in Melbourne. He was supposed to go to Duntroon, but unfortunately was too unwell to ever make that trip. He never saw a mare, and even if he did, it wouldn't have mattered because he was a gelding, that is, a male horse who has been castrated. He was euthanised in 1922 on account of his blindness and what the vet called increasing debilitation. So no foundation here either. The Brumbies running around the national parks are not the descendants of the Anzac horses. But there is one final argument those wanting to give the Brumbies special treatment trot out. Earlier in this episode, I mentioned the Brumbie Bill that passed the New South Wales Parliament in 2018, officially the Kosciuszko Wild Horse Heritage Act. This bill and its supporters claim that the feral horses in New South Wales have an intrinsic heritage value to the area, and deserve to be protected as living history. I personally just could not get my head around this claim. So I headed over to the website of the Australian Brumby Alliance, which is one of the groups that is making this claim, to see if they could explain the incredible value the horses supposedly have to the area. Now, I read through their Brumby Heritage page. This page consisted of five dot points and an admittedly excellent list of links to government reports, academic studies, and recommendations by the New South Wales Parks and Wildlife Service regarding the feral horse population. But something stood out to me on this page. Among the general definitions about heritage and culture, and woven into all these reports and documents and studies, it seemed to me That what actually has heritage and cultural value is the stories and the mythologies surrounding the Brumbies, not the animals themselves. And this is so true. Stories always have heritage and cultural value. But those demanding these heritage protections extend to the Brumbies have missed a fine point in the argument. Just because a story is good doesn't mean it's true. They claim that the Brumbies are the last links to the unique culture and values of the mountain graziers. But this claim is simply not backed up by the facts. They focus on the sport of Brumby running, that is catching and breaking in Brumbies for work on farms. And while this was practiced by the graziers, the vast majority of the horses working on those properties prior to the 1940s were purchased from stock markets or they were bred by the graziers themselves rather than being plucked from the bush. What's more, the idea of the hill farmer with an intense connection to his land and deep respect for the Brumbies is built on a false premise. The graziers were connected to the land only as far as knowing how best to manipulate it to turn a profit for them, and they did not respect the Brumbies one little bit. I've already mentioned the machine guns of the 1940s, But that idea was almost humane compared to the way graziers treated the Brumbies in the 19th and earlier 20th century. A warning for extreme animal cruelty here, but this does need to be said. The most common way graziers dealt with Brumbies prior to the range wars of the 1940s was by mustering a large number, penning them in, and then opening fire with rifles. And these were not trained sharpshooters hitting the animals in the head and causing instant death either. Only the lucky animals died instantly. And those who were injured were not dispatched with a mercy shot, but were usually left to bleed out. Of course, as the shooting started, the horses would also try and escape. This caused injuries and survivors of the initial volleys who were wounded were, well, this is nasty, but they were usually eaten alive by the wild dogs before they died of their wounds. Working in teams across the ranges, the graziers or more likely their farmhands and employees could and did kill thousands of Brumbies at a time. Another well-documented way of killing the Brumbies was once again to muster them and then slit their throats. Not deep enough for instant death, but enough to ensure they would bleed out relatively quickly. The horses would then bolt, blood flying in ribbons behind them, until they collapsed and were once again left to bleed out. As far as the horses who were injured by the graziers' fences, as I mentioned at the top of the episode, they were usually left to die of their injuries if they weren't first killed by the wild dogs. This was the reality of the relationship between the graziers and the Brumbies. It was not one of love and respect, but of hatred and cruelty. I don't believe the Brumbies belong in our national parks, but pretending that there was some kind of deep relationship between the horses and the men who slit their throats for sport is vile. The Burra Charter, an excellent document which defines different types of cultural heritage, including living heritage, states that cultural significance enriches people's lives, providing a deep inspirational sense of connection to community and landscape and to past lived experience. But applying this deep inspiration and sense of connection to the Brumbies based on mythology is deliberately misrepresenting what living history actually is. Living history coexists with the present. It doesn't cause destruction and it won't destroy the future. If the Brumbies are allowed to stay in the national parks, the extinction of irreplaceable flora and fauna is guaranteed species unique to the highlands of New South Wales in particular might as well have never existed if we choose to go down this path. So the Brumbies do not have heritage value. They played the same part in history as rabbits, foxes, cane toads, and deer. Pests who were brought into this country for work, sport, and convenience who quickly became unmanageable and set about destroying our native environments. We recognise the terrible destruction caused by every other feral species in this country, but far too many people have determinedly shut their eyes to the fact that the horses are as deadly to our environment as any other introduced pest. Banjo Patterson's poems are extraordinary examples of Australian literature, but they're works of fiction and should be treated as such. Patterson was inspired by aspects of bush life, in the same way that Elizabeth Banks was inspired by the story of Cocaine Bear. Neither Patterson's poems nor Banks' movie depict real-life stories, and they don't seek to either. They portray an imaginary, at times exaggerated idea, designed to appeal to a target audience. When it comes to Patterson as well, as I mentioned at the top of the show, he was not some starving artist or a rough-as-guts hill farmer. He was a respected journalist. He was a very comfortable middle-class man. His farm was profitable. He'd seen Brumbies. He was an excellent horseman and he had done some droving in his younger days. But his idea of the relationship between the Brumbies and the Graziers, the same one used to build the mythology that prevents us from protecting our priceless national parks from the feral horses to this day, never had a grain of truth to it. They were poems, please, for crying out loud. Poems, not factual accounts. As for where I stand, I agree with the views of Nick O'Malley, the environment and climate editor for The Age and the Sydney Morning Herald. Completely removing the horses is the only way we can save our national parks, especially in the highlands of New South Wales. O'Malley rightly points out that the only way to do this successfully and prevent a return of the horses is through a cull. And as much as I'm loath to support the killing of animals, in this case there really is no other way. The Brumbies defenders say they can be captured and rehomed, but at last count there were more than 18,000 Brumbies wreaking havoc in the national parks. And without serious and immediate intervention... That number is expected to increase to 50,000 by 2030. There are not 18,000 homes willing or able to take the horses. And even if there were, given how they got to the bush in the first place, lost, abandoned and escaped, how long would it be before we were dealing with the same problems all over again? Our ecosystems are fragile. And the current climate crisis is only making the situations worse. When it comes to the Brumbies, the facts are clear. The stories in which they feature are valuable. The horses themselves are not. It's time for Australia to end this deadly love affair and consign the Brumby to the one place where they can do no more harm while continuing to be a part of our story. And that place is history. (coughs) Thank you so much for listening and that's all I have for you today. As always, you can get in touch with me through my website, www.skepticalhistory.com. that's sceptical with a K, or on my social media. I am Juliana Byers on both LinkedIn and Instagram. Next episode, we're leaving Australia for the first time and heading overseas to examine an intriguing story from the United States. On the 4th of August, 1892, Andrew Borden and his wife, Abby, were violently murdered in their own home by an assailant wielding an axe. Andrew's daughter Lizzie was accused and acquitted of the crime. But did she get away with murder? Would she really have killed her own father? And in such a brutal fashion? Find out next time on The Skeptical Historian. The Skeptical Historian is research produced and hosted by me, Juliana Byers. You can find a full list of resources used in research by going to my website and clicking on sources. Sound effects by Adobe Creative Cloud, used under the Adobe Software Licence Agreement, and Pixabay, used under a Creative Commons 4.0 International Licence. Links to all Pixabay sound effects can be found on my website. The music track The Whistle Funk by Telsonic was used under an Epidemic Sound individual license. Podcast hosting is by Fusebox. See you next time, skeptics.